awesome God that you love us so much. We pray now as we go to your word that you would be our teacher. You would minister to every heart that is here. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Is this on? There we go. That might help. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be happy to get you one. And again, as we say every week, you feel free to take it home with you. If you can, if you'll use it at home, we'd love to bless you with it. I also want to encourage the guys. Hey, if you haven't thought about it, Friday mornings we get together at the Heavenly Cafe out in uh, Scotts Valley, and it's just a time from 7 o'clock till 8 or 8.30. You can leave whenever you need to. We just go through the Word, and it's a good time of prayer and fellowship. And I want to encourage you guys to come on out to that, because it's good to be in a small group where we can get to know each other better and, and be able to pray for one another. Um, and also, the OIA class, Inductive Bible Study. I want to encourage you, if you're somebody who's really serious about really wanting to get deeper into God's Word, again, it's not the only method you can use, but I, it's the method that I use. And I, I've been blessed by it for years, and sometimes you'll, you'll hear a pastor on the radio or say, how in the world did you get so much out of the text? And I'll tell you that Inductive Bible Study method, it takes discipline to do it, but you'll be really blessed. So just pray about being involved and do sign up because we do have a lot of materials that go with that. Okay, with that being said, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, 1 Corinthians, as we've been talking about, is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. It's a very practical letter where Romans was a, a doctrinal letter or a teaching letter. This is much more practical in instructing the church in Corinth. As you recall, Corinth is a very wicked city, a city filled with philosophers and a city filled with sexual immorality and idol worship. And it was very prosperous, but it was very godless. And in the midst of that was this church that had been planted by Paul, and Paul's been gone for several years now, and he gets word coming back that they are becoming more and more like Corinth. Now, as the church and as believers, one of two things happens with us. We either become more and more like the world, or we have more and more of an impact on it. We're either witnessing to the world and ministering to the world, or we're becoming like it. And sadly, the church in Corinth, though they had spiritual gifts, were falling into the trap of becoming more and more like the city. And so Paul's letter he sent to them, he first reminded them that they were to be set apart, that they were not to be like the world they lived in. He told them in the light of pagan idol worship that the power of salvation comes from the cross. If you're here this morning, I want to make it really clear to you. One way God said to get to heaven, and Jesus is the only way. Amen? He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. And apart from His work, His shed blood upon the cross, you and I cannot be saved. So we must be born again. And Jesus Christ is the answer. And with all the idols around them, he wanted to remind them, guys, it's the cross. And for all the idols around us, whether it be career or false gods or other things that we can pursue, I want you to know that they're empty and they have no eternal significance. It's only Christ that can transform our lives. He then told them the true source of wisdom because they were into philosophers. And they loved hearing what men had to say. And they thought if a guy was really eloquent, he must be really intelligent, and we need to listen to him. I don't care how eloquent you are. It's not the man, it's the message that matters. And the message can only come by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where wisdom comes from. He then also contrasted the carnal man with the spiritual man, talking about the fact that those who do not know God are void of wisdom, they're ignorant of truth. He then also talked to him about the person that God can use. He said, guys, the man or the woman God uses is a servant, has a humble heart, endures affliction, and reflects Christ. And then last week, we saw him confronting immorality in the church. And he told them how to respond to sin. He said, guys, when you've got people in your church 
who just say, you know what, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm going to live my life the way I want to. You go to them with one brother first who sees it, Matthew 18 is our model, and say, hey, you know, bro, I see this in your life, and not, again, not self-righteous, not judgmentally, you know what, we're not the Holy Spirit. He lives in us, but that's not us, Amen. We're not to go around and point fingers at everybody. Our job is to pray for people and, and to encourage them. And then if we see someone who is hurting, to come alongside them. And then if they don't listen to one, you bring another brother. And only then, if they continue not to listen, then you bring it to the church. That that person may be delivered up, that they might be restored. Church discipline, the Bible is not to, you know, the church is not a police station, it's a hospital. Amen? It's not a place where you come to get beat up with a stick. It's a place where you come to be be healed, to be encouraged, to be strengthened. Amen? And so he told them, you know, that when, when sin is evident in your life, the response should be mourning and brokenness and repentance, not arrogance. And one of the things I see sometimes when people sin is they're arrogant about it. And I'll tell you, that's a dangerous place to be. So we come to chapter 6, and I titled the message today, Glorifying God in Your Body. And we're going to see two different bodies that he speaks about. The body, which is the church, all of us, we're all part of the body. But then also our physical body. And the, the couple of things we're going to look at as he addresses these, the, again, more concerns about their behavior. The first seven verses, he's going to talk about it's better to be wronged than to demand your rights. You know, too often we live in America. In America, it's all about having our rights. I got rights. Don't be treading on my rights, man. I mean, I'm, that's my right. You know what? I don't want what I deserve. How about you? Amen? Because what I deserve is hellfire. And I don't want that. I want mercy, not my rights. I want not what I deserve. I want what God desires to give to me. And at the same time, too often we're so concerned about how we're treated that we'd be, we're more concerned about us than we are the kingdom and about our testimony. And so the first part of the chapter, he's going to talk about that. Then he's going to talk about the serious consequences of sin. He's going to give characteristics of someone who doesn't know God. And when we look at this, again, we need to see our salvation isn't based upon our works, but our salvation should change our lives. If we've been born again, we should be different. You know, I'm concerned when I meet people who say they're Christians, and I've known, and I watch their life, for, and again, I'm not the judge, God is, but you watch and you see no transformation. The Bible says we're new creations in Christ. The difference between a corpse and a living person, that's a big difference, Right? And that needs to be the transformation that happens in us. And then lastly, he's going to talk about the fact that Christian liberty is not a license to sin. We have rights and we have liberty, but we're not to demand our rights when it causes harm to our testimony, and we are not to use our liberty in a way that will cause harm to the body of Christ, or to our own bodies as well. So let's begin in verse 1, looking at, Glorifying God in your body or in the body, and in regards to Christians suing each other. Let's begin in verse 1. It says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And the way that he says this is basically what he says is, How dare you? How dare you? You know, now if your pastor writes you a letter and starts off, you know, you're reading, how dare you? That's not good. That's not good. And so he says, how dare you guys? You know, Apostle Paul loves them, he cares for them, but says, how dare you, again, this strong wording, this indictment, how dare you take your disputes before heathen courts? Two believers coming together, having a disagreement, and then running to an unbeliever. Now, what has he been telling them all along? That the world has no wisdom. 
So you take two believers who have the Spirit of the living God living inside of them, and you go before an ungodly council to get their advice. That makes no sense. And Paul said, how dare you deny what God's plan is? How dare you turn away and turn to unrighteous judge, someone who's not justified before God, someone who's spiritually dead, someone who has no access to God's wisdom. Psalm 1 says, walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. We've talked a lot about you know, individual counsel that you have. That's why you don't go to someone who's not saved for counsel. You don't need their counsel, they need yours. Amen? You're born again and going to heaven, they're not. Who needs whose counsel around here, right? And the reality is you have the hope of eternal life, and they can give you no answers because apart from the Holy Spirit, there is no wisdom. Now, should we have counsel? Yes. But get it from somebody who is godly. Get it from somebody who can take you to the Word and show you what God's Word says, not the opinions of some dead atheist like Jung and Freud and others. Amen? And so here what he's saying to them is he's saying, guys, why are you going to the world? How dare you when you need to come to the Lord and you need to come to your brothers in Christ and you need to get godly counsel? He says there the word he uses is unrighteous. And the word there is Speaking of worldly wisdom, it's that it's empty, it's of no value, and no matter how elevated the man's worldly position or how many letters he has after his name, the wisdom of men is foolishness to God. When you turn to the world for its wisdom, its counsel, and judgment, we receive that which is void of truth and void of God's wisdom. It originates from the, the flesh, it originates from mankind instead of originating from the Lord. And you know what happens when we go to the world for counsel? Here's what happens when you go to the world for counsel as a Christian. It tells that person that is counseling you and everybody else around you that God's not sufficient. You know what? I've been going to church and it's just not helping. I mean, the Lord just isn't uh, sufficient for me, so I need to go to the world to get answers. And that's why Paul's, you know, he's indicting them, saying, how dare you go to the world? Because what are you doing? You're getting counsel from dead men. And you're harming your testimony before the world and before the council. The council is sitting there going, see, I knew it. These Christians are just like us. and There's no transformation. There's no power in their lives. There's no difference. And what you need to understand is in those days, the way that they had trials, they had them in the center of the court. And the local judges sat in what was called the Bema Seed. It was located right in the middle of the marketplace. And the Greek culture would have loved court TV. Because they love to sit and listen to a great civil trial. And so when you went to court, guess who knew about it? Everybody. So when you would go in and be suing your your Christian brother or your Christian sister, everybody knew and everybody said, see, their God's not, he can't handle it. They got to turn to the world. They need our wisdom. We don't need theirs when actually it should be the other way around. As brothers in Christ, born again, new creations, filled with the Spirit of the living God, may we not have so contentious disagreements over non-essential things that we turn to the world for answers. These guys are suing each other. Don't bring it before the world, bring it before the Lord. Again, we don't want to blow our testimony over something that is not eternal. Over desire to get my way. Isn't that what happens with us? Sometimes it's our pride. Sometimes I know people that have spent more money going to court than whatever the thing is worth because they just want to prove they're right. Right? I'm t- I don't care. I'm, I'll sell my house. So I'm going to prove it, right? Get that 50 bucks back from you, right? I'll do whatever it takes. And too often it it's comes from a heart of pride. And he's saying, how dare you harm the name of God suing your brother? This is your brother. 
You should have your arms around each other. You should be reconciled to each other, not suing each other and not bringing down the name of Christ over the dispute that you have. Understand this, that all we do should be done in consideration of how it will impact the Lord's name, His church, and the gospel. Everything you do, you ought to think, how is this going to impact the kingdom of God? How is this going to impact my walk? How is this going to impact my testimony? If it's going to harm your testimony, harm your walk, don't do it. I don't care how much money it's worth. I don't care what's behind it. Don't do it if it will not honor God. As Christians, our actions either bring glory and honor to His name or harm to His name. And again, in Romans, He told them that they were, their actions were causing the people to blaspheme God. And remember that as you drive around with that Christian fish on the back of your car. Right? Don't drive 110 miles an hour in a 55 with a Christian fish on the back of your car. Amen? Don't be cutting people off in Jesus' name. Amen? And there, I, know, I have one Christian friend says, I ain't putting no stickers on my car because I drive like an idiot. I said, bro, you need to change your driving habits, not keep the, the fact that you're a Christian a secret. Amen? And so, again, we need to realize that everything we do ought to bring glory and honor to His name. The way we do business, the way we work as an employee, the way we live in the sight of our neighbors. As Christians, it's not only pretending well enough to fool others, that's reputation, but living lives that honor God at all times, even when no one is watching. That's character. Reputation is who you are when everyone's watching. Character is who you are when no one's watching. But God's always watching, amen? And character is who we are before God. And as Christians, you might say to yourself, well, Pastor Dave, is it ever okay to sue anybody then? Can I tell you right now, you're not to sue your brother, period. You're not to do it. If you have a Christian brother, don't sue him. Let yourself be wrong. We're going to see in a few verses. Let yourself be wrong. Give it up. It's okay. Let God have it. It's better to do that than to harm your testimony. But what about the world? Can I sue the world? Well, Romans 13 says we're to submit to the legal system. And we can bring unbelievers before the law. Before that authority they recognize. You can't bring an unbeliever to the church because they're not going to hear it. You bring an unbeliever into my office and I say, well, bro, you're wrong, he's right. Well, yeah, whatever, right? Not going to listen. They don't care about discipline from the body of Christ. You can take them to court. But I want to say this. Make sure you prayed hard and fast before you take anybody to court. You just make sure that you've heard from the Lord. You make sure that your motives are not to get even or to get revenge, or anything like that. Our motives ought to be, all right, Lord, you've told me this is your will, I'm going to go do it, I'm going to do this in a godly way, and I'm not, I'm not doing this for vengeance, and make sure that that's your heart. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says Dave. No. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Amen? It's God who will bring vengeance, and we need to leave it in His hand. Remember our pattern, go to the brother. That's what we do with believers. And with unbelievers, you make sure you pray. Make sure you've heard from the Lord. Verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Now this ought to blow our mind. Our relationship with the world is this. We are to have no fellowship with it. But guess what? When Christ returns, we will be judging over it. How many of you knew that? During the millennial kingdom, Christ is going to be king, and we are going to be his judges, his governors, his mayors, whatever words you want to use, and God is going to have us ruling over people. So, if people in your church are going to be judging over the world, why would you not turn to them before an unsaved person 
and seek godly counsel from them. That's what he's saying. We're going to judge over the world. Why is it that we cannot turn to one another? It says in Revelation 20, in Matthew 19, in Revelation 2 and 3, that we're going to judge the world. And again, that we will be those who serve under the Lord. And again, we shouldn't be shouldn't we be able to deal with the matters of the church? Now, not only will we judge over the world, but look at verse 3. This is incredible. Look what it says. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Now, it's amazing to me that people today worship angels. Do we worship angels? No. An angel is a messenger of God, and angels are used by God to to protect us, to, to minister to us. And you know what? When we, and right now the Bible says that we are below the angels. And we don't worship them, we worship Christ alone. But some people are so fascinated with angels, but what angels are is heavenly servants. That's what they are. And the Bible says when we get to heaven, that we will be above the angels. Now when I was reading this and studying this and looking at all the texts that go with it, you know what I thought about? I thought about one angel who would have really not liked that very much. His name was Lucifer, and he didn't even want to submit to God. So how would he feel about all of us showing up and being above him on the list? He wouldn't like it much at all, right? And isn't it amazing, again, that he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour because he does not want man to judge over him. He wants to rule over man. And you're making a choice every day. Who are you going to serve? As Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody, right? Guy can't sing, but that's the lyrics, right? You gotta serve. You gotta serve somebody. I don't get it, but you gotta serve somebody, and it may be the devil or it may be the Lord. You gotta serve somebody, and it's true. And you know what? Here's the, here's Satan's heart. You know, again, it says in Second Peter two four and in Jude one six that we will rule over the fallen angels, the demons. Did you know that? We're gonna rule over them, and you guys are out of here, right? And Satan doesn't want that, and he wants to take us with him into a place of eternal torment. So we battle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil force of darkness in high places, and this illuminates even more the difference. Either we will be ruling over them, or we let them rule over us. And we will also rule over even the angelic host, those that serve God. Again, they will be there still to serve us and to minister to our hearts even as they are now. You know, the destiny of a born-again believer to one day be higher than the angels and even sit in judgment over them, what an incredible truth. Wow. I'm not worthy, how about you? Amen? I feel like, Lord, if I just get to be in your presence, this is good for me. Amen? I'm blessed. You can let me in heaven? I'm good, that's good. I'm not asking for any more, that's it. I'm good, I'm happy, right? Amen? But you know what's amazing is that God desires not only to save you, but then to use you and give you gifts that He might use you, and then bless you for the gifts He's given you when you use them. What a great God we serve, amen? He gives me the gifts, and He says, here, I'm going to give you the ability to use it, and all you have to do is say, yes, Lord, and then when you use it, I'm going to give you rewards in heaven for simply obeying me and using the very things I gave you to use. What a great God. And it's not us trying in our flesh and striving harder so God will love me. Can I tell you, He loves you as much right now as He will ever love you no matter how hard you try. No matter how much you, you you know, you can crawl on glass and, you know, you can do all these things to show that you love God, but God already loves you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? He that knows me best loves me most. And God desires to have that intimate relationship with Him, and He wants us to join Him in that place of 
again, fellowship and intimacy where Satan wants us to join him in that place of eternal torment. Verse 4. If then you have judgment concerning things to per- con- pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Since we have such a glorious destiny before us, and the Corinthian believers had before them, called by God to judge the world and the angels, why then do we turn to unbelieving judges, ungodly counsel, and worldly wisdom, things not esteemed by God, and ask them to judge us and to rule over us? Now again, I want to make this really clear. This is not talking about criminal trials. All right? Criminal trials, Romans 13, we submit to the authority God's placed over us, and if someone breaks into my house, and, and I press charges... Because sin has consequences, amen? And the person goes before the judge. Now, do we still love him and pray for him? Absolutely. But this is talking about differences between brothers, civil things, you know, broken contract, a misunderstanding, a disagreement. Don't take it to the world that that has no answers. Bring it before God. Bring it before your Christian brothers and sisters who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Verse 5 and 6. I say this to your shame. It is so that it is not... A wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brothers go to the law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Again, he's blown away. How dare you do this? It brought shame upon them in doing so, upon the church, upon the Lord. These Corinthian believers, proud of what they thought of as wisdom, proved they had no wisdom in seeking judgment from the world. Only a spirit-filled believer can impart godly wisdom to disputes among believers. Again, civil cases, bring it to the church. Criminal cases or civil cases with unbelievers, take it to the court. But make sure you've heard from God. And going to unbelievers blows our testimony. Look at verse 7. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to the law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Now this is a hard word, isn't it? How many of you want to be cheated? I just hope somebody comes along and just rips me off royal. That'd be great. I would love it if I hired a contractor and he came into my house and got my house half torn up and then skipped town with all my money. Boy, I'd just be praising God if that happened. And you know, the reality is, it's very difficult for us to take it. But you know what? This is not our home. And the stuff that is here is all temporary. And it's so much more important that we have a good testimony than we be comfortable. Amen? So much more important that we allow ourselves and allow God to use us in our circumstances as an opportunity for the gospel. It's better to accept wrong than to bring harm to the name of the Lord. And again, the Corinthians were addicted to their rights. By clinging to their rights, they had already failed. They said, you guys already failed. You're going to court, you've already failed. As soon as you get to it doesn't matter who wins, you failed. Why? Because you went before ungodly men seeking godly counsel. It's better to accept wrong, to let yourself be cheated, than to defend your rights at the expense of God's glory and the furtherance of the kingdom. How much does God's name and His kingdom mean to you? How much does it mean? Is it about your testimony or your rights? Is it about me or is it about God? Is it about my comfort or God's glory? You know, Jesus didn't come to earth to get His rights. He came to earth to take your wrongs. Amen? And yet we as Christians walk around demanding our rights. Lord, use my life however you want. Lord, it belongs to you. And Lord, if it's going to be difficulty that's going to bring you the most glory, then that's fine. Because my life is not my own. Who purchased our life? 
He did. So who does it belong to? Him. So how do we, who do we think we are telling him how he's supposed to use it? It's not mine, it's his. Amen? Lord, my life is yours. Use it however you want. Use it for your glory. And Lord, sometimes it's more through difficulty than it is through the, you know, being on the cruise ship to heaven that brings the greatest testimony. And he says, don't sue each other. Let the Father be glorified. Let there be restoration. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came that the Father might be glorified and that there might be restoration between sinful man and holy God. And it's better to be cheated than to harm the cross of Christ. It's better to be cheated over something that doesn't matter anyway. You know what's funny to me? The things I used to think were important when I was a lot younger aren't that important anymore. And I guarantee you when we get to heaven, the stuff we thought was really important down here is going to have no significance whatsoever. The stuff we want to fight to the death over. We get to heaven, meaningless. And the Lord's saying, don't, again, drag the name of Christ through the mud. And again, I want to say this, don't ignore the problem. It doesn't mean that every time somebody does you wrong, you shouldn't at least address it, because you should. But don't allow your pursuit of your rights to cause the name of Christ to be harmed. There's a difference. Somebody totals your car and they've got insurance. Don't just go, oh, well, I thought about my rights, so it's okay. God bless you. Have a great day, right? No. You got an insurance card? Thank you very much. Call the insurance. It's okay. But if it comes down to it where it's going to cause the, the name of Christ to be harmed by you pursuing your rights, then just let it go. Some of you have heard this analogy maybe more than once, and forgive your pastor because this is just the most appropriate one. I've told you this several times probably, but my wife and I lived in a house in San Jose. We moved out. When we moved out, we had a $2,000 security deposit, and as most of you know, any of you that knows my, know my wife, my wife is the cleanest person on the planet. And that's not an exaggeration. You've been to my house, it's a fact, okay? Now, my wife spent days cleaning the house because this guy that was our landlord, we were trying to be a Christian testimony to him. He came over and mowed the lawn. My wife would give him lemonade and tell him about the Lord. And he would always tell me how he was blown away how nice the house was. He goes, man, the house is way nicer than when I lived in it. Your wife is such a good, oh man, she keeps it so clean. So we moved out, and you know what it's like when you buy a house and you spend every dime you have, and, and we're waiting for this deposit to come back, and my wife had spent three days after we moved out cleaning this place. I mean, you could eat off the floor. It was spotless. And then I get a phone call. For, I call him. I'm like, you know, where's the $2,000 check? We kind of, you know, we could use that right about now. And he says, oh, you're not getting any money back. We're not getting any money back. Oh, I had to have three cleaning crews come in here for two full days to clean this pigsty and get it back into rentable shape. Oh, your pastor got in his flesh. I, I have to bear with it. I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I wanted to punch him in the nose. Not because I didn't care about the money, but my, heart, my, wife, my wife's heart was broken. Here she is trying to bless somebody, and he's trying to rip us off. And so I thought, okay, we'll just take him to small claims court. And I called some previous tenants. He had done the same thing before. It wasn't just us. It was previous tenants. This is just his M.O. of getting a couple grand out of everybody. You know, you move out of the house, what are you going to do? And then my wife came and said, you know what, babe? And she wrote him a letter and just said, you know what? Keep the money if you want it. It doesn't really matter. Just want you to know the Lord loves you. And you know what? She didn't want to blow a year of, testif- of, of testimony with this guy over 2000 bucks, And that really blessed my heart. And you know, that's the picture here of don't allow your being wronged to blow the testimony you have before men. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And you know what? If God wants you to have the money, He'll give it back to you. Amen? Doesn't our Father have a cattle on a thousand hills? He'll take care of it. And God provided for us. We didn't starve. We're okay. God's a faithful God. Now, we're going to move on from looking at this don't sue your brother 
right? And how we're not to blow our testimony in pursuit of our own rights. And now we're going to look at the seriousness of sin. And sometimes I think we take sin a little too lightly. Sometimes we think, well, we understand God's grace, so that means I got, you know, I've got God's grace. So I can, and, and isn't that one of Satan's biggest lies to the believer? I think it is the biggest lie he tells us. Go sin. It won't matter. You're forgiven. How many of you have ever heard that before? Right? I hear it daily. Every day. Just go do it. God will forgive you. Right? That's what Satan does. But you know what? We need to understand that sin has consequences. And I want you to take a look at this list here because it's heavy. He says, no, you're, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. You do these things to your brethren. He says, look, you're taking them before court. You don't care because it's all about your rights. And you know what? You guys cheat. And you guys are doing this to your own brothers in Christ. And you know what? You're going to stand before God accountable one day. You do wrong. You defraud them. You deceive them. You purposely cheat or try to get over on them. You know what? There's no room for dishonest dealings among Christians. And you know what? As believers in Christ, again, I would pray that when we do business, that we would do things to our own harm, not the harm of His name. You know, I, I used to sell Yellow Pages, most of you know, for about 18 years total between two co- couple different companies. And I remember customers telling me, I'd go through the, thing, the stuff to put in their ad, and we talk about a Christian fish, and the guy would say, man, I'm never doing business with anybody with a Christian fish in their ad again. I go, really? Oh, man, they always rip you off. I went, oh. I mean, it just broke my heart, because again, there were those that used the name of God to bring business, and were all about themselves. It's all about me. You know what, again, may we represent Christ in a, in, a, in a loving way, in a gracious way, in a godly way, and, and you know what, unto my own harm way. And he says, you guys are cheating your own brothers. You're getting over on your brother. Again, only gains you, but it separates us from God. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, people struggle when they see lists of sins and say, but I do these things. But we'll talk about this. Let me read it to you. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how many of you have ever been guilty of any sin on that list once in your life? Raise your hand. Oh, we're all chapped. You know what this is talking about? He's talking to believers, and he's saying to them, if this word describes your lifestyle... Could it be that you're not, you don't really know God? Do you know that only God truly knows if you're saved or not? We can get over on men, we can fool men, but we cannot fool God, and He knows our heart, and these are attributes of unbelief. These are attributes of hearts hardened toward God. And if this describes your life, we need to examine our hearts and find out if we really know the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't sin and we don't blow it, but when we blow it as believers, repentance quickly follows. Amen? We're convicted and we repent. When I sin, it breaks my heart. You've heard me say that I believe a a good sign of spiritual maturity is a distance in time between when you sin and when you repent. The more mature you get in your walk, the less and less that time becomes. It goes from being weeks or days or hours to moments to seconds. Where you sin and you're just convicted immediately and you, you don't even want to take another step without getting right before the Lord. Now, the cheater puts himself to shame. He puts himself in bad company. And if a Christian can defraud his brothers without conscience, it's fair to wonder, where's this guy's walk? Is he truly saved? Now I want, you to, I want to explain something, because people 
do this all the time, and, and, we're, and I've gone through this even recently. It's not good works that produce salvation. It's not you trying harder so that you will be saved. It's salvation that produces a transformed life. Amen? It's not you outwardly doing the best you can so you can be more inwardly holy. Inward holiness produces an outward change in your life. Amen? And so these things are evidence of somebody whose heart hasn't been changed. If they can live in it, there's no conviction, it, it's, a, it's something that describes their life, this is a sign of someone who's not a believer. Now let's go through this list fairly quickly, but I want to go through it. It says first there, fornicators. First says unrighteous, that just means doers of wrong, those not in right standing. It says do not be deceived, because God will bring judgment. Don't equate God's patience and God's grace with God's permission. Amen? I've heard people say that. Well, I've been doing this for years and God's never smoked me with lightning or anything. So it must be okay. He hasn't smoked you lightning yet. Right. No, you know, we should, not, we should not allow God's patience and God's grace to be an excuse or for us to think it's, a, it's His permission. Now the word there, fornicator, is, the word is pornos or pornos. Well, I wonder where we get that from that word. It's anything, any act outside of God-ordained marriage. Marriage is one man with one woman for a lifetime. Amen? That's God's plan. Not one man and two women, not two men, not two women. That's not marriage. That's not, I don't care what the court says. It's an unbelieving court that decides that. The Bible is the authority. Amen? And marriage is one man with one woman for a lifetime. And so fornication is any kind of relationship, any kind of physical relationship outside of heterosexual monogamous marriage. Those of you I've counseled with before, you've heard me say this. A physical relationship between a husband and wife is a great thing. God blesses it. And He loves it. It's like fire. You put it in your fireplace, it warms your house, you can cook your food over it, it's wonderful. You take the fire out of the fireplace, marriage, and put it in the drapes. It's bad. It burns your house down, right? The same is true of a physical relationship. In marriage, it's a wonderful thing. Outside of marriage, it is destructive. And he says, fornicators, those who live that lifestyle, and just say, yeah, whatever. Now, I can go around, I, hey, whatever. Yeah, I prayed a prayer and walked an aisle years ago, but this is my lifestyle. You know, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a babe magnet, what can I tell you, Right? You know, guys going around checking out the... That's, that's not someone whose life's been transformed by the Lord. It says, nor idolaters. Again, idol worship. Worshippers of false gods. And today, maybe you don't have a, you know, a Buddha in your living room that you worship, but maybe it's your career, or your possessions, or your physique, or whatever, where you put something above God. Nor adulterers. Someone who has a relationship with someone who they're not married to. You know, in first century Rome, if a man was caught in adultery, the husband could kill him and nobody would say one word. So even in Rome, which was a godless place, adultery was wrong. And we live in a time today when it's not if you've had uh, an affair, it's how many you've had. By the way, it's not an affair, it's adultery. Don't you love how the world likes to put it? An affair, that's like a party, right? <laughs> We're having an affair. It's not being gay, it's being a homosexual, amen? Gay is happy. It's not happy. It's not good, right? And so the world likes to turn these words, words and put slants on it. Now the next word is homosexuals. And you know what the word here is? In, in the original language, it's the word for effeminate. 
It's a man who takes on female characteristics. This would include like cross-dressing and stuff. Now, so, do we live in a confused city? Man. They got clubs on high school campus for this. You know what? It breaks my heart. Those kids need to know Jesus loves you. He created you to be exactly what you are. And you know what? What you're looking for in this other thing, you're ch- it's not the answer. You need Jesus, and He loves you. Amen? And we meet these guys. We shouldn't judge them and pound on them. We should love them. We should love them and encourage them. But what does it say here? Homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God, and yet churches are fighting whether or not they should have homosexual pastors. How does that happen? You don't read the Bible. The Bible stops being the authority, and that's what happens. Nor sodomites. This is still homosexuality. This is the more, you know, the, the, the trying to be delicate here, the aggressive person in that relationship. You got the effeminate portion, and you got the, the more masculine portion in a, in a homosexual relationship. And he takes time to break it down both sides and says, They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor thieves. Well, that's someone who steals. Nor covetous. One who must have more. Or drunkards. We're not alcoholics, we're drunkards. If we drink alcohol, we're drunkards. If we do drugs, we're drug addicts. Now, God can deliver us from that, amen? And He can forgive us, and He can transform our lives. And you know what? Be not drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting that they call alcohol spirits? Isn't that interesting? Spirits. You drive by a says, spirits. I don't need that spirit. I got the spirit inside of me. Amen? Don't need it. And so, again, if we're living that lifestyle, and that is a reflection of who we are, we're not saved. That's what this verse says. Not Pastor Dave's opinion. It's the Word of God. Revilers, those who assassinate another's character. Extortioners, one who steals by threat of violence. And all these sinful behaviors are a perfect description of a certain city, Corinth. Everything we read in this list, what does it describe? It describes the place where they live. He said, you know, all that stuff you see going on around you, that's a sign of unbelief. And you're not to become party to it. You're being delivered from it. Though they lived near them, they were not to live like them. Though they lived around people who were involved in this kind of activity, they're not to be like them. Verse 11, And such were some of you, and praise God for this, but you were washed. We've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? But you were sanctified. That word there means set apart. We've been set apart unto God. Some of us in the past have been fornicators, have been idolaters, have been drunkards, have been all the things on the list. And he's saying some of you in Corinth, everything on this list you've you've been delivered from, including homosexuality, and that should encourage us. That people that we meet, they can be delivered from that sin too. Amen? And praise God for that. And so he says, some of you were, but you were washed in the blood of the Lamb. And you've been sanctified, which means set apart unto the Lord, away from the world and unto God. And then lastly, it says, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Remember, justified, declared just, no longer guilty. Justified, just as if you never sinned. You've been justified. Does it blow your mind that that while we remember our sin, God chooses not to remember it? You go to the Lord and you're praying and you feel like I've come to Him for the 35th time over the same sin. And we say, Lord, forgive us and please forgive me for the last 34 times. He says, what are you talking about? I don't remember it. I separate your sin as far as the east is from the west. When you come with a repentant heart, I cleanse you. Man, what a great God we serve. 
What a blessing to know that He is a forgiving and a gracious and a merciful God. Through the work of the cross and by faith in Him, not our own works, we've been cleansed. Now, verses 12 through 20. We need to see this. We'll, close, we'll finish up with this. And now we're going to see that Christian liberty is not a license to sin. Okay, you've been born again. Now, how are we to live? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. In Romans 7, it says we died to the law. It's no longer a, a lot of do's and a lot of don'ts as Christians. Did you know that? Now, sadly, the Christians that walk around with a list of do's and don'ts don't grasp the cross. It is what? Finished. It is finished. Now, is Jesus a liar? No. And yet, you have Christians out there saying, but I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, or God won't love me. And I've got to do this, and they're putting burdens on each other. And they walk around just no joy and no peace. And just overwhelmed all the time. Can I tell you, you've been forgiven. You're going to heaven. You're a new creation in Christ. It is finished. And we've been freed from the law. Because what does the law do? It reveals our sin to us. And praise God that our, our, our sin's been revealed to us and we've been born again. So Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts, but an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In Corinth, the word liberty, they had a liberty to sin. Now for us, liberty is not the freedom to be bound again to the very sin that Christ delivered us from. Not freedom to exercise liberty as we pursue God. Some actions uh, cause our brothers to stumble. And while they're not sinful, don't do it if it's going to cause another to stumble. Amen? You can do something that for you is not sin, but might cause your brother to fall into sin. Don't do it. And that's what he's talking about here. Don't allow your liberty to cause others to stumble. Don't be put under the power of anything other than the Holy Spirit. Don't allow yourself in your liberty to be given over to anything other than the, than the Lord. Whether it's the pursuit of your job or relationship or, or anything else. Make sure that what you're pursuing is the Lord. Verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This is a Corinthian saying. They would say food is for the body and body is for food. And what they kind of use that to say is, if I'm hungry, I eat because my body wants it. And if I, if I have the desire to be with a woman, I just go get a prostitute. What's the problem? They separated their spiritual walk from their physical actions. They tried to say, well, I'm a Christian over here, but what I do to fulfill my body is over here. But guys, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And our body is not our own. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And all that we do, we bring the Lord with us. What is the purpose for the body? It's the vessel of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says He has treasure in earthen vessels. It's not for sexual immorality. And that's true of the body in whole and in part. And what I mean by that is, it's true of what your eyes look at. Guys, especially. You know, if you're looking at stuff that causes you to lust in your heart, you're committing adultery. You're committing fornication. Don't do it. And we're going to see in a moment what we should do when those temptations come. Again, our body belongs to the Lord. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We are to use it for His glory. And God both raised up the Lord and He will raise us up by His power. Our bodies, temples of the Holy Spirit, will be raised up again in the last day. And Paul is emphasizing the importance of our bodies being used for God's glory, not 
for physical pleasure. It points to the resurrection, that our body again belongs to the Lord. Verse 15 and 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. He says, do you not know? This was obviously something they didn't fully understand, that as believers, or even as people, when we come together in a physical relationship with somebody, we are then joined to them and we become one with them. Leaving a part of myself behind when that relationship ends. It leaves less for me to give to my spouse someday. Guys, physical relationships has consequences. God will forgive us because you're forgiving God. But when we go outside of that bound of marriage and we have that physical relationship with somebody else, then what we're doing is we're linking ourselves to them. And you know what? When Christians link themselves to unbelievers, they're linking themselves to immorality. And it's so sad. Husband and wife, one flesh is a blessing, but outside of marriage, it's a curse. You know what it does? It harms the physical body in many ways. One, there's a lot of diseases going around if you don't know that. You know what? I have no concern about getting AIDS. Zero. You know why? I'm monogamous. I got one woman I love and only one woman I'm going to be with till I die. And I'm not doing any IV drugs, so I'm not worried about it. And it's amazing how, you know, you have to walk around in fear of those things if you're living a lifestyle outside of submission to the Lord. You know what? Love God, serve Him, walk in obedience to His will, and don't worry. you won't have to worry about that stuff. It harms the body spiritually by being joined with a harlot. It breaks fellowship with God. It allows someone outside of Christ as the unlawful Lord over your body. You're saying at that moment, I'm more concerned about my physical desire than my relationship with God. And I don't care if I have to join myself with a harlot, I'm going to do it right now because that's more important to me. Boy, that's heavy. And I'll tell you, it's sad. You know how it happens? It happens typically slowly. Sex outside of marriage is like robbing a bank. You get something that isn't yours, and one day you're going to pay for it. Sex within marriage is like putting money in the bank. It's safe, it's secure, and it produces dividends. Amen? Word up. All right. Verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord is one Spirit with Him. When you're joined to the Lord, you're one spirit with Him. You're taking Him with us wherever we go. What a blessing. And we'll be so much more satisfied to be joined to Him and the the partner that He brings to us than anything the world wants to tempt us with. Do you know this? Can I tell you, my pastor said this to me 20 years ago and I've never forgotten it. Your flesh will never be satisfied. Never. One of the lies your flesh tells you is, just one more, and then you'll, then, then you'll be over it. You've got to get it out of your system. You ever heard that? Your flesh will never be satisfied. You don't put the flesh to death by feeding it. You put the flesh to death by starving it. Amen? And he's saying, what are you, you know, when we're joined to the Lord, we should be satisfied with Him and need nothing this world has to offer. Verse 18. Now, what should we do with sexual immorality? We should see how strong we can be. You know, I just, I'll just go out with her for a while, but I, you know, I, got, I got under control. See how much I can test myself, but I'm, you know, I'm, I got strong will, I'm going to be just fine. What does it say? Flee. That means run away. That's what it means. <laughs> Flee sexual immorality. Run away. 
doesn't tell us to be brave and to resist temptation. He tells us to flee, not to be, even be in its presence. Many have fallen as they underestimate the power of their, their lust and passion. Thought they could test themselves. Thought they could just be near it. I hear that all the time. I, I just want to be, you know, I'm not going to fall though, Pastor. It's, it's, we're okay. We've got an understanding, my girlfriend and me. You're going to be alone and you're going to fall? Is that the understanding? Here, what did Joseph do? Remember Joseph with Potiphar's wife? She grabbed him. And we know she was good looking because he had to leave. Because if she'd been ugly, he'd have just given me my coat. Right? I mean, <laughs> no problem. But you know she was good looking because she was trying to entice him. What did he do? He ran. He left. Keep my coat. He lost his job, everything. Why? Because he ran. And praise God. Lustful passion cannot be reasoned with. You cannot reason with passion. You can't. It ain't going to work. Run away. That's what the Bible says. Amen? And sexual immorality, again, it includes all things apart from marriage. You cannot reason with some of the stuff you watch on TV and movies and things like that. You can't reason with it. Can I say this to courting couples? You know, you're going to think your pastor's radical. Well, that's all right. You probably already do anyway, so it won't be anything new. Don't be alone. But wait a minute. We're courting to marriage. Great. Be alone on your wedding night. Until then, don't be alone. What if we want to talk? Go to Denny's. <laughs> Sit in a booth and talk for eight hours if you want. You know what? People don't get in trouble in a booth at Denny's. It's amazing how that works, right? Don't be alone. Have a relationship that is above reproach. Sitting on her sofa watching videos is bad. Danger, danger, Will Robinson, right? That's not good. Don't be there. And so flee sexual immorality. Run away. And look what he says there. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. All sin against your own body affects us both physically and spiritually. Last two verses. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Since you are filled with the Holy Spirit, it must influence our behavior. Our bodies belong to God. They are His treasured possession. We have no right to pollute and abuse God's property or the body of the one you're courting. You're polluting yours and theirs. And you know the sad part is? that it's pretty prevalent in the church today for there to be immorality in relationships prior to marriage. You know what? Let's not be like the world. Let's trust that God knows best. Let's believe Him. Does He know what He's talking about? Does He love us? Does He want what's best for us? Absolutely. God lives in us. We should expect purity from Christians more than unbelievers because Christ lives in us. Even living in the midst of a morally perverse and wicked people like Corinth, we should be different passionately pursuing God, not our own physical pleasure. So in review, glorifying God in your body. It is better to be wronged than to demand your rights. It's better to just let it go. Let them have what is temporary that God might be glorified. Christians suing each other. Our testimony is more important than our rights. The serious consequences of sin. We saw characteristics of an unbeliever. If you're here this morning, we're about to take communion. Communion is for born-again believers. It is not for unbelievers. Why? Because we do it in remembrance of what? 
Christ what? And what work? The cross. And we have entered into fellowship with God through the work of the cross. And as we take communion, Calvary chapels, we don't have membership. We don't. You're here, you're a believer, you're part of this church. That's how it works. There's only one church anyway, we're all a part of it, amen? Amen. Now, when we have communion, though, it's between you and God. The Bible says not to take it lightly. When we take communion, we're to examine our own hearts and and where we are before the Lord, and we're to say, Lord, examine our And it should be a time of reflection, a time we look back upon the work of the cross, and and we make sure that we are in right standing before God. And then we take the elements. And so it's so important that if you're looking on this list here and that describes your life, guess what? You can be washed, just like it says in verse 11. The cross can turn verses 9 and 10 into verse 11. It can turn all those lists of sins that are a sign of someone who's an unbeliever and transform their life into someone who knows God. And then lastly, Christian liberty is not a license to sin. We are to glorify God in our body and we are to flee sexual immorality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the practical applications of this chapter. Help us, Lord, in in all these areas of life, Lord, not to demand our rights, but to be more concerned about your name being glorified. Father, may we not be those who go around pushing our weight around in Jesus' name, but may we be servants desiring to esteem others greater than ourselves. Lord, may we not allow the pursuit of physical pleasure to get our eyes off of you. May we not fall into the trap of that sin that will separate us from you and and produce broken fellowship and consequences down the road. Father, we thank you that we've been washed and we've been sanctified and we've been justified, not by our good works, but by your good work on the cross. And Father, I pray that we would not allow our liberty to be something that would give us freedom to sin. Now, Lord, as we go to this time of, of communion, may we not take it lightly. May we never take the cross for granted. May this be a time that we would examine our own hearts before you, coming with hearts of repentance and brokenness, desiring restoration. Lord, if there's areas of sin that that we've been holding on to, Lord, I just pray we'd come with a confessing mouth, and Lord, that you would forgive us and restore us to right fellowship, that we might commune with you this morning. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. If anybody needs to use a restroom or anything, go ahead. We're going to take communion now. Here's how we do it at Calvary Chapel. What we do is I'm just going to make the elements available. And as soon as they start playing a song, just come on up and grab grab the elements. Remember the bread is a picture of the body of Christ, which was broken for you. And the juice is a picture of his shed blood. Remember, his body was broken that you and I might have eternal life. He was beaten and he was scourged out of his love for you and me. And then his blood was shed. And what can wash away my sin? Nothing but what? Blood of Jesus. And so this is a time of reflecting ourselves. Again, this is for believers. Now, if you're not born again and you're here, you can be. And being born again is not joining a club. It's not joining a religion. It's not joining a church. It's simply coming to God saying, yes, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died on the cross for my sins, and I want him to be my Savior. And if you pray a simple prayer like that, you will be be a new creation in Christ right now. And then once you've done that, you can come and freely take communion. So let's take this time, and again, everybody just come on up, go back to your seat. You can take it with family or friends if you want, or just take it on your own. We'll play a few songs, and again, make this a time of reflecting on our, on our hearts before God and on the work of the cross. Amen?